Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. We're starting a, this is the 24th class of our 34th class, John Review. Um, the next four classes will be on the Anapanasati Sutta. Uh, Anapanasati means mindfulness of the breath. And this is a, it's probably one of the three or four most misunderstood suttas. And it's usually taken to such extreme levels as the Buddha taught to meditate on all these different subjects when the subjects that are included in the Anapanasati Sutta are merely examples. Well, not merely. They're the examples of what has been achieved by accomplished monks and nuns. In other words, these are arahants who now have developed these certain qualities of mind as a consequence of their Dhamma practice. So these aren't things that we grasp after or hope to... Um, acquire them and put them on a shelf if it's something that we've done this this is a description of how an awakened human being lives within the framework of the dhamma um it follows uh our, the two classes on the hindrances the avarana and the bana sutras a lot of sutras i gotta keep in my head um and then jen's class uh, last week on those two short poems, I think they're both about six lines long, uh, Sumangala and Sumangala's mother, what they developed in jhana practice, and the discussion that was that uh, was inspired by Jen's teaching last week was really remarkable. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to um, the class on the hindrances, the Avarana and the Bana Sutta, please do so. Uh, and last week's class. They're, both of them are posted. Um, well, let me just get into this. The Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing. I have heard that on one occasion the Buddha was staying at Savati in the Eastern Monastery. This was during the Upasatha day of the full moon. Many of the elder disciples were with him. Venerable Saraputta, Venerable Maha Mogalana, and there's quite a few more. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to go through all of them. But these were, again, senior monks and nuns um, who the Buddha is holding out as examples of uh, a well-informed and well-practiced Dhamma practice, much like we do here with our teachers. During this time, the elder monks were teaching the Dhamma. They were each teaching novice monks with groups ranging in size from 10 to as large as 40. And that was typical as um, monks and nuns developed the Dhamma to a certain point and not necessarily a completely awakened state, but having a good grasp of the Dhamma and they were able to teach it. That was another quality that not everyone has. Some people can just, uh, Mogalana, I just mentioned him, was someone who the Buddha would call on uh, for very specific reasons, but most of the time, Ogallana preferred to be off by himself, and that's fine. Um, but they were given um, groups of people 
that range from 10 to 40, maybe even a little bit more, that were um, their own little sangha within the larger sangha. Because as the sangha grew, um, within a month, there were about a thousand people in the Buddhist sangha. So it was too much for him to address everyone and keep track of everyone. So they broke it down into smaller groups. And then the Buddha would give teachings to everyone when the time was right. They were each teaching novice monks with groups ranging in size from 10 to as large as 40. The new monks were learning quickly and, and correctly. The Buddha arrived and was seated in the open air surrounded by the community of monks. Surveying the silent community, that's important, the silent community, he addressed them. So this was a large group of people, and yet they were just sitting quietly, and you could say calmly and peacefully. The Buddha says, monks, I am pleased with friends. I am pleased with what is taking place here and the dedication to develop the Dhamma and the realization of Nibbana, the awakened state. And again, the Buddha never taught that this awakened state, full human maturity, was something that took endless lifetimes, like a lot of things that were taught during the Buddha's time. And as much of Buddhism is taught, Today, 2,600 years later, still teaching that the Dhamma awakening takes endless, and I already, how many times I have to hear, awakening takes endless eons, but go ahead and practice anyway. That's so self-defeating. Um, but I didn't come across any modern Buddhist practice that teaches awakening in this human lifetime, when that is the only thing the Buddha taught. We're human beings. We're here to awaken in this lifetime. Why? So we can actually live it and be, be present for it. The Buddha says because of that, the way that they're practicing, he says, as such, I will remain here at Sabati for another month through the fourth month of the rainy season. Most of the time the Buddha would stay. The first three months of the monsoon season were when the Buddha and the rest of the original Sangha would stay in Sabati. It was dry, and then the, the uh, monsoon season would pass, and they would go back and start wandering around uh, northern India and southern Nepal. It's interesting that the Buddha has had this incredible influence over all this time, and he never left the 400-square-mile area, and his teachings are still re as relevant today. The monks in the surrounding countryside heard this and left for Sabati to join the Buddha and the Sangha. A short time later, the Buddha addressed a large, but again, quiet community. Monks, this community of monks is free from idle chatter and is established on pure heart when he starts right at the beginning. Free of idle chatter. It doesn't mean that they're not talking to each other, but it's free of idle chatter. They're not talking about what a lousy season the Yankees had. The Giants don't look much better. Don't look better or anything else that is irrelevant to the Dhamma. And the Buddha always taught, when you're gathered as a Sangha, you speak only of the Dhamma. Why is that? So that we can keep encouraging each other, just like we do here in class. We don't get into other things, such as the Yankees and the Giants. <laughs> we talk only of the Dhamma. And we all develop the Dhamma, at, as the Buddha's talking about, rather quickly. And we do it quietly. Listen to it. I mean, listen, we're all being quiet right now. Of course, because I'm talking. 
Then the Buddha says, this community is worthy of gifts and worthy of hospitality. This community is worthy of offerings and worthy of respect. We're worthy of, of respect because we're teaching something in a respectful way. We're, we're maintaining respect for the Dhamma. And all of us Dhamma teachers do the same thing. And all of you in the Sangha do the same thing as well. And that's why it works. This community will bring much good for the world. Then the Buddha con continues, due to their establishment in the heartwood of the Dhamma, that's always the Eightfold Path is the heartwood of the Dhamma. When a small gift is given to this community, it becomes great and a great gift even greater. This community of monks is rare to see in the world like we are. This and that doesn't mean that we're elite. It just means that not everybody is going to practice what we practice. Remember, the Buddha taught the Dhamma for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. He didn't send, set himself up as a savior, and he didn't set himself up to save the world. Because if he did, he would be contradicting the first noble truth, there is Buddha. This community of monks is rare to see in the world. This community of monks is such that it would be worth traveling for leagues, taking along provisions in order to learn from them. In this community of monks, there are monks who are arahants. Arahants are awakened human beings who have fully developed the Eightfold Path and whose mental effluence have ended. These arahants have completed the task and have laid down the burden of continued eye-making. They have attained the true goal and abandoned the fetter of becoming, in parentheses, further ignorant. Whenever the Buddha is referring to becoming, that's what he's referring to, becoming further ignorant. So in this moment, we have a choice. We can continue to further ignorance by ignoring the Dhamma, or we can continue to further become awakened by practicing the Dhamma. So each and every moment is really that choice and that significant and pivotal choice. What am I going to become? It's up to me. And it's always up to me what I'm going to become. And if I become something that I find is unpleasant to myself and maybe other people, it's not your fault. It's not the world's fault. It's not the way I was born or the whatever else I might decide. My life is determined by the way I see myself in relation to the world that I live in. And if the way I see myself in relation to the world is free of eye-making, free of taking things personally, then I will be calm and I will be at peace, no matter what occurs. And more importantly than that, as importantly, is that I'll be present for it. For each and every moment of my life, which means also being present for the things that I might have said, I don't like this and I don't like that. I don't like this person. I don't like being in this situation. But through the Dhamma, we, we learn to be present for it and then to be at peace with it because all of it is my life. And if I start taking sections of my life that I say, no, I don't want that. No, I don't want to experience that. I'm robbing myself of my life. Because all of that is part of my life, the good and the bad. 
And when I can understand that and be present for each and every moment without taking it personally, now my life is full. Now my life is rich because I'm not picking and choosing what I want. I'm present for each and every moment of my life. It's what makes each and every moment of our lives meaningful to be present for. But that's the, the, that's Occam's razor. That's the fine edge. And my, if I'm going to be present for my life, and I really hope I can be, then I have to be accepting of my life. The Buddha was the most radically accepting human being I've ever come across. But we are doing the same thing. And we're learning the difference, the significant difference between acceptance and approval. It's foolish of me to think that I have to approve of what's occurring because it's already happening. My life is going to unfold whether I approve of it, it or not. But if I think I have to approve of it, what am I doing? I'm putting conditions on each and every moment and literally each and every thought. Or I can release the, that hand of the, that grip that I have to control everything in my life so that I can keep the things I don't want out. And the big secret is if I can just learn to accept things. Why? Because they're occurring. It's a little bit, and I would say really a lot insane, a, a, a real form of mental illness to always fight what's occurring. Why? Because it's already occurring. So if there's something about myself that I don't like, and it keeps coming up Groundhog Day, should I change the whole world? I can't do that, can I? but I can change the way I look at myself in relation to the world. I can learn the difference between approval and acceptance. They have attained the true goal and abandoned the fetter of becoming further ignorant. They are released through right understanding or right view, such as this community of monks. Again, the Buddha is just holding these ordinary human beings up as examples of how to practice the Dhamma. In this community of monks, there are monks who are abandoning the five lower fetters, and I'll explain those in just a moment, are totally unbound from clinging to ignorant views. So these five lower fetters are what keeps us clinging to ignorant views. Let me just finish saying that. From clinging to ignorant views, their minds continually resting in equanimity. Such are the monks in this community of monks. These five lower fetters are so self-referential views, constant eye-making. This is important, and the Buddha says this in many different suttas, grasping at rituals and practices. Much of modern Buddhism, I know from my own experience, is rituals and practices are the way to go. The more you can do certain chants, bowing, uh, the the... Um, Tibetan lineage that I took my vows in and quickly renounced those vows. Um, once you take your vows, then you are expected to take 108,000 complete vows. That's from a standing position. You lay down, you touch your head on the, on the, on the ground or the, or the floor, and you stand up. That's one. 
and you do that 108,000 times before you can start whatever Dhamma practice they teach. You know, there's no actual practice. That's a ritual that the Buddha said, forget about those things. They were common during the Buddha's time. Remember, he studied with all of the, 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 most, the four most spiritual so-called teachers of his time. And two of them he referenced, Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta. And they both taught things that are rooted in rituals and practices that were just mindless exercises that are rooted in eye-making. If I can chant, I was a part of a, a, a Zen community that was big in chanting. And I remember chanting my, I'm going to say it, chanting my ass off. <laughs> and feeling like a fool because I'm chanting in Pali and Sanskrit, neither which language I know much of, I know a little bit, but for hours I'd be blah, 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 blah. For what? But yet I did it because everybody else was doing it. Grasping at rituals and practices, don't do it. Uncertainty or a lack of conviction. We should be engaged in Dharma practice, and we mention it often. Be engaged wholeheartedly. Be in with both feet. Because if you're, if you're just dabbling in it, you're always going to find ways that it doesn't work. But those of you that have jumped in with both feet, you see that it does work. And it almost immediately begins addressing the things that you really need to address, which is I'm making in this moment. Uncertainty or lack of conviction, craving for sensory stimulation in so many different ways, ill will towards oneself or others. And all of those will always block us from continued Dhamma practice, but every one of these can be recognized and abandoned within ourselves. The Buddha continues. In this community of monks are monks who are abandoning the first three fetters, and with a diminishing of passion or continued eye-making, with a diminishing of passion, aversion, and deluded thinking, have established a heartwood and will make an ending to stress. They've established a heartwood. We've integrated the Eightfold Path as the way that we're living our moment-by-moment -moment life. Excuse me. And maybe that's something that we could talk a little bit, bit about, if you remember. Um, how much is the Eightfold Path the framework and the guidance for your life? And it's okay if it's just a little bit, as long as it's a little bit, because that will grow. But it's important to recognize it. And again, that's why the Buddha's teaching is. They are in the stream of the Dhamma, resolute developing the cessation of suffering, their minds inclined towards awakening. Such are the monks in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to development of the four frames of reference, the four foundations of mindfulness, right? We do that in jhana meditation. That's how we practice jhana, is first with the four foundations of mindfulness. And then we take that concentration and those four foundations of mindfulness off our cushion into our moment-by-moment -moment life, and that is how we hold in mind, we find mindfulness, the entire Eightfold Path, uh, as our framework for living in this moment. 
and I'm going to finish this with this part. The four frames of reference, the four right exertions, the four bases of power, the five faculties, the five strengths, and the seven factors for awakening, the Noble Eightfold Path. And what we'll, I'll explain all of these as we continue this sutta. Such, is it, such are the monks in this community of monks. The four frames of reference are the four foundations of mindfulness. And again, this is just a reminder of what we do in jhana practice and then take off our cushion. We begin with mindfulness of the breath and the body, right? We all begin our jhana practice the same way. No matter how busy our day is, we find a secluded spot and we take a breath. And we, think we begin to establish mindfulness of the breath and the body, uniting the, the mind and the body. Mindfulness, mindful of feelings arising and passing away. We don't get stuck on it. We don't, we don't let a feeling lead to 20 minutes of just distraction chasing that feeling. Through concentration, we recognize a feeling is just a feeling. We allow it to arise and pass away. We do the, th the same thing with thoughts. We're mindful of thoughts arising and passing away. And finally, we're mindful of the present but impermanent quality of mind. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Be at peace with your mind. It's your mind. That's what I'm talking about. No matter what quality of mind we find ourselves in this moment, and it might be great fear, it might be great anguish, it, may, it might be great bliss. But whatever that quality of mind is, be at peace with it. And we can learn to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states through practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's the end of part one. Um, so yeah, maybe we can talk about uh, how we've established or not, it's okay if we don't feel like we've established much of the Eightfold Path, but how that's working for us and how our, um, if you recognize that our practice rests on, is truly founded on these four foundations of mindfulness, right? Um, I'm going to go to Jane because she always likes when I go to her first. Hello, Jane. Hey, John. Without going into any detail, I mean, my practice has totally changed my life. So I, I just, just can't go into detail, but it's it's night and day difference. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jane. Sadika, am I saying your name correctly? Hi. Yes, um, that is correct. Um, I don't know if Julia and Zach is there. Um, hi to them. Yes, they are. Hi. Um, yes, I Julia shared with me um, the five minutes and ten minutes of meditation, and I'm oh, doing gosh. the five minutes every morning. So it's getting there. <laughs> no, I'm getting that's there. Great. Can you can you incorporate another sit later in the day? Say about twelve hours later. Uh, no, because I it, it was a little more difficult in the evening because my mind is, my brain is everywhere. I can't calm it down. So. Yeah, that's why it's so important. So do your best. And even if it's just one minute, to, just to start getting into the habit of sitting twice a day. Uh, but if you can incorporate that second sit, you'll find it very helpful, no matter how short it is. Okay. 
I'll try that. Thanks. Great. And just keep coming to class when you can. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank uh, you so much for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. Uh, Dev keeps bouncing on and off, so if I get a chance, um, if he comes back on, I'll call him. Speak of the devil. I think he just got a poor connection. Hello, Dev. I know you're having trouble with your connection, but um, you have anything to say? Are you? I'm sorry. Are Are you speaking to me? Yes, I am. I noticed uh, you're having trouble staying staying on, but uh, what would you like to say tonight? How's the heartwood of the Dhamma working for you? Um, it's going good so far, and uh, yeah, this um, yeah, as you know, this is a relic very relevant sutta for me. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, so I just want to say thank you and, and, uh, I'd like to continue listening. Great. Deb. I'm glad you joined us tonight. Thanks for, for sharing that. Tracy, did anybody mind if I put the camera on? If you do, it's okay. No, you're fine. Uh, thank you so much for the, this teaching. Um, in terms of the Eightfold Path in my life, I think that uh, I came to this practice with the intention of like rebuilding my life. And um, I find that like we're just getting into the Eightfold Path in the last few classes and I've been applying it's made um it's allowed me to have a direction mm. for the first time in my like entire life pretty much and I think the the things of the, the parts of the April path that I find myself coming to a lot in the last couple of weeks when I have to make a decision is um right view and right effort mm -hmm. those are the two that are most practically used I feel like um, and then also right concentration when I'm in jhana meditation. And, yeah. um, right effort's been very helpful because I have a tendency to isolate. Uh, and it's easy for me to ask myself the question, like, is this right effort? You know, and then decide yes or no to that question and gives me a way to move forward without yeah. deciding whether I want to do something or I feel like it or... You know, if something's making me feel afraid, not, you know, to so just do it anyway, because it's right effort. And that feels really good. It feels like something's holding me. There's a container that allows me to make choices that are skillful. Yeah, that's it. So, inner confidence. It's growing in your I feel inner that way. poise. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, it, the Buddha references that often that he developed that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, it's so I was important just, to recognize. It's funny you mentioned confidence because um, I was just talking to a friend. I'm going to meet a person for the first time that I don't know, like stranger basically on Saturday, right after, right after our class. And I just told her, I said, I always feel confident when I leave class. So mm -hmm. I'm not worried. <laughs> like if I had to go tomorrow, I might be nervous, but if I go right from class, I will be like totally good, you know, cause it's like, 
I'm in my head is in the right place. Yeah. Just allowing whatever to happen to just happen. So it's funny that you use that word because I just too use that word. <laughs> well, and that and that inner confidence or inner poise just continues to grow the more that you integrate the eightfold path. The, 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 I talk about the eightfold path as a limiting path. It's designed to limit us to be focused on what is most important in my life. And once we we're able to develop that and liberate ourselves from all the other eye-making, we, re we, we realize just how, um, I was going to use the word powerful, but that's not really it. We realize how sublimely wonderful it is to just be present for this life, no matter what. Even if it's coming up against something that might be difficult, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because all of that is just part of dukkha. Right. And and now I can, again, I, I hesitate to use the word embrace because it's used too much today. Um, but to simply be present for whatever's occurring. And that's life's own reward, isn't it? So, and you're using it, you're even um, applying it in the future. In a, uh, you're looking forward to the future now that you can bring the Dhamma with you. Yeah. It's liberating, isn't it? It does feel that way. Yeah, it's, it is. It's just that way. So, thank you for sharing. Okay. Zach, good to thank see you, my friend. John. Good to see you as well. How is it going, integrating the Eightfold Path into my life? Sometimes very well, sometimes okay, sometimes it's not there. But that's okay. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, the question is, how are you when it's not there? Right. <laughs> not great. But um, it wasn't there at all six months ago. So it's all good. Yeah. You notice the difference. Important. Thanks, Seth. Thank you. Deb, welcome to our Sangha. It's so nice you finally made it here. Very happy I made it. Yeah. How's the Eightfold Path doing for you? Good. I was thinking that it is like a gentle unfolding. There's this gentleness about it for the most part. Yeah. And you're going along, sometimes you think nothing's different or you don't even really think about it. And then here, like, reflecting. And I think in the last, you know, couple of years, I think that I recognize that, like, relationships are deeper yeah. and gentler and, I don't know, something like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. I love that. <coughs> the potential for liberation resides in each moment that occurs. If I could yeah. just remember that every day and in every interaction with people, you know, I'm like, you know, not just for myself, but the person who I'm interacting with. Yeah. Anyway. No, that, thank, thank you, you so much. That, <laughs> that is, each moment holds the opportunity for liberation. And the Dhamma can only be practiced right here, right now. There's no Dhamma practice yesterday. And there, we can't practice the Dhamma for tomorrow. We can only practice the Dhamma right here, right now. We can only live our lives right here, right now. We have to be present. We have to figure out a way 
to be well concentrated enough so I can bring my mind and my body right here. This is what's occurring. And in this moment, I don't need anything else to be occurring for me to be fulfilled, for me to find meaning and purpose. And I don't need to justify or explain myself. I find that all that I need to be in this world is to be a human being. And it's all that I can ever be. That's why I love Popeye. I am what I am. And that's, again, it doesn't, the, every human being has certain limitations and we have certain strength. And all of those come together to make my life my life. And if I can just be present for it, it's rich enough. I don't need any other embellishment. I don't need to be something other than what I am. I can just be here. And you're all learning that, aren't you? Right, Julia? How's that for putting you on the spot? No, that's okay. Um, thank you for the teaching. Hi, Sadika. Um, Deb, I think something about what you were saying really resonated with me, but I can't remember what it was, so just thanks. <laughs> um, the feeling is good enough. The feeling was enough, yeah. Um, how the April path is going in my life right now. Um, not that my personal life isn't important to me, hi Zach, but I think a lot of it. today what is coming up for me is how at my desk for where I work, I have, I think I told you guys this before, but behind my laptop monitor, I have a post-it note that says breathe and then next to it, like the cliff's notes of each of the eight parts of the April path, like the sort of the definition. Yeah. It's a couple of uh -huh. times in the books and I've had it in teachings, but um, maybe after a month or so, or having that up on the wall, Zach and I were messing around with the different parts of the path and like, what's just, what's more important right now or whatever. But I think even in some of the teachings, we talk about right view and right effort or right speech and right effort. I forget which one's being like really seminal. Not that one is more important than the other, but things when you're starting your journey yep. to being sort of bedrock upon which others build. Which ones are those? Well, most people um, remark to me um, that right speech seems very relevant, yeah. but that it, that makes sense too, because what we're talking about is not just the, the conversational speech that I use every day, but what's most important is to start honing in on the story you're always telling yourself. Yeah. Because that's the one that's creating an identity that you have to, defend and support out in the world and it can't be supported there's no substance to it so that's where dukkha lies is in that but also tracy mentioned uh right view and right effort mm -hmm. they're they're closely linked too because right effort is referring to i'm changing my view and i'm moving myself toward a right view in this moment yeah and that that right view has a it has a quality to it doesn't it it has a quality of freedom and liberation. And we know it when we're there and we know it when we're not there. And again, that's why it's so important to use the framework of the Eightfold Path so that it limits us to just what's important. It's not limit us that we're losing something, but it limits us so that we can be present for everything. You know, I say it often, maybe I'm getting a little too superfluous, but if you wanna know what it's like to live on the edge of eternity, be present because the edge of eternity is right here right now it's not sometime in the future i'll be there right this is it 
Please. I think what that, that all totally jives for me because when I think about when I'm not fully present and I'm just going, um, I think that my right speech inside, outside, and right view or right intention, when I reflect, I notice that. Yeah. I've like defaulted back into like old mode. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is a helpful reminder. Yeah. And I, it's a practice. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think you would all agree, we don't have to keep talking about this, but you you're all are becoming much more circumspect about what you're thinking and how you're acting. And that is in, in relation to the to jhana practice and deepen your concentration, just so you can be present for your own mind. And I say it all, the Tibetan word for meditation is gong, G-O-M. And it simply means to become familiar with. You know, we don't do Tibetan meditation, but we're becoming familiar with our own mind. Cody, how are you tonight? Uh, I'm well. Thank you for the teaching, John. Um, and thank you, everyone, for your... Uh, I get so much out of the discussion. Yeah. Um, the Eightfold Path. Um, I'm struck by... The notion that I can't, I can't make myself follow the eightfold path. There's no, um, like the words are there. I understand. I think a little bit about what they mean, mm -hmm. but um, it's not the ten commandments. It's not the eight. You must do this. Is it's. Um, the more that I struggle to, um, to fit myself into some code of conduct, the more I chafe against that and the less effective it becomes. Mm. Um, but, um, right speech, for instance, I sit and I'm calm and I have equanimity and, um, I don't know, if the wind's blowing the right direction and I'm having a good day, then um, I can have right speech in any given moment. Mm -hmm. um, or not. You know, I can lose that, that quality very quickly. Um, it's what's been occurring to me as I'm listening to everyone. Um, is, you know, that, that idle chatter and how much, um, that's expected, oh, yeah. how much people want you to, uh, engage in idle chatter so that, you know, um, and it's, uh, I'm finding a balance between, um, equanimity on the one hand and the freedom of if I'm in this moment and I'm practicing 
as best I can this uh, this quality of, of mind or this eightfold path, then um, there is so much freedom in that, in, in, in the moment of, I don't have to worry about 10,000 things. Yeah. There are there are an infinite number of things that I don't have to worry about if I'm present in this moment. Yeah. Um, but um, there's also a, like a detachment there. And um, I don't know, today I'm feeling that it's, I'm feeling a sense of that setting me apart. Um, so I don't know, maybe tomorrow I'll take the day off from the Eightfold Path. I don't know. We'll see. It, there's times when, <clears throat> when you start integrating the Eightfold Path and you start looking a little bit past where you are in this moment, it can almost seem like annihilation. Like if I stop eye making, what's going to happen to me? But you're also you're also having glimpses of liberation at the same time, and that's why it's so important to do just what you're doing to to, to be circumspect and be reflective of what's going on in your life, literally, probably for the first time, and that is rooted in the four foundations of mindfulness, isn't it? We're fine. I mean, I remember when I first started gaining a little bit of concentration, and it was like. Holy crap! You know, this is, um, this is. There's really something here that I never saw before, and it was the, it was the, the mundaneness of life, stuff that I didn't want anything to do with because it wasn't stimulating enough, that was becoming magnificent to me, and it was, it was making my life much more richer than it ever was before, and you're, you're, you're alluding to that, and you're touching it, and. I mean, to me, it just keeps growing and growing the more that we integrate the eightfold path. And there's a, there's a, uh, I can't think of the right word, a dichotomy here. But that the, the more that I limit what I grasp after and what I'm averse to, meaning I just allow things to be as they are, the more, the more, the more richer, the richer my life becomes, the richer our lives become. And again, it's just, it's just because we're present for everything, no matter what it is. And also we start making um, choices that are more uh, informed by the Eightfold Path. So the rest of our lives tend to be, become quieter and simpler. And, and it's just all part of this package. So. Thank you for what you shared, and that's you know that's a good example of developing Dhamma practice. Thanks, Cody. Here's Rob. Hello, Rob. Thank you, Joe. Um, Matt mentioned that the Eightfold Path is is like a mirror, um, and I I like that that metaphor. Um, in the, in the beginning of, of my practice, it, it felt like um, really practicing the Eightfold Path is 
It's, it's like wearing like a really nice suit, <laughs> light colored, and then go out and have a meatball sandwich. Because <laughs> when when your when your concentration is is lacking, you know it'll show up. <laughs> uh, you know, and then and later on this this this. Um, it changes in, in, in quality and practicing because um, you can see that meatball sandwich coming and see the, that glob of, <laughs> of, of sauce, you know, heading for your knee and you just move it out of the way. Um, or wear red pants. Yeah, or wear red pants, you know, and you see that bird and it was just about to let go. <laughs> you step aside. Um, what do we say to the guy? What, what are you doing when the train's coming at you? You take you two step steps aside. to the right. Exactly. You know, the little dog poop on the street. You step past it because you see it. You know, you're no longer distracted by it. Yeah. All of these things. And you and the opportunity to to uh, take it personally just becomes obvious. Like, oh, yeah, I could take this take this personally, but I don't have to. Yeah. And for the first time in your life, you actually have a choice. Yeah. 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 And the choice and the choice is not hard. No, it, it, it's just it's like, very subtle, but there it is. It's glaringly obvious. Yeah. And that's where the power is. That's where the Eightfold Path is, brings you that kind of power to simply be present. And boy, I feel like having a meatball sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Hello, David. Can we stop for meatball sandwiches on the way home, please? <laughs> God is talking to you. <laughs> The Buddha. What do you think, David? Think about what Cody said. The greater pleasure of delusion to take a day off. The choice of thinking that that's a relief when the greater pleasure is maybe the uncomfortableness and the weirdness of that clarity mm -hmm. that maybe it's not so comfortable for other people to see that calm and, and that's the that's the part that people will get used to uh, you know, I came into my practice jumping in with both feet and no goal no expectations and that's that did well for me because yeah. I understood pretty quickly the limiting effect. Like this was very limiting. It wasn't going to fix me. It wasn't going. I wasn't looking to get fixed. Uh, I wasn't looking for anything spiritual. Just like I told Zach, I don't know what that means. Uh, but I just wanted to understand. Just wanted to understand what uh, what was going on in the way where I felt stress. Yeah. And uh, that's what this brings. Brings a gentle pushing along the path. And if 
understand that the scope, then it relieves all the things that you think it should be. And maybe absolutely wrong in how you're evaluating and defining what eightfold path is, what right speech is. But along the way, coming to class and developing the practice and developing your 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 jhana meditation, it'll start coming together. And, you know, yeah. Then you'll understand what right view is. So that's eightfold path for me. Yeah. Thank you, David. You touched on something that's important. And as we develop the Eightfold Path um, and we start the, we begin to get comfortable with having a mind united in its body all the time. And that takes a certain amount of practice and, and getting used to. Um, and just like other people, might notice a change in ourselves and either accept it or they don't. Some people might not. We also have to have the courage to accept that we're different people now. And that can be a challenge, especially if we're holding on to old views of ourselves. But again, that's where the, the Dhamma is always going to um, bring up what we need to look at. You know, we can't hide anything, but that's really the, the power of the Dhamma too. And it's own gentle way that talked about the gentleness of the Dhamma. Um, and it's related to how how much can I accept the changes in myself? And, uh, and am I comfortable being uh, being um, someone who doesn't have uh, a lot of eye making going on? In competition with other people, I'm just present for what's here, and there's times where that could seem incongruous with other people, but that's that that's where it takes courage, but also great gentleness to be okay with not being engaged and entangled in the world all the time. That is difficult at first, isn't it? And I could say it's difficult later on because the world is always wanting to get its hooks in us. And even people that are our friends, you know, not to blame them, but they want to take us along with their journey too, in distraction and uh, sensual indulgence and all the rest of it, where we're trying to live a much more quieter, circumspect life with a mind that stays united in its body and doesn't jump after everything that's out there or being distracted by it. I, I mean, I, the, the clearest example I can give is when I, and it, it's not, no, when I quit drinking, the first thing I stopped doing was hanging out in bars. It would have been much more difficult for me to stay sober if I sat in bars every night. The same is true with Adama. If I keep kind of doing the same, engaging in the same distractions, well, I'm not likely going to be developing Adama. At some point, as Cody's describing, I'm going to have to pick and choose a different way to live my life and be at peace with it. You know, it, it, it's up to us to be at peace with our minds. It's our minds, isn't it? Why would we fight it? But the Buddha had to teach us not to fight it and how not to fight it. But it's our mind. 
There might as well be a case for this, right, Matt? Yes, Matt. John, thank you. Uh, I'm not going to add anything to, to what we talked about tonight, but I, I do want to let everybody here know how much I appreciate each of you engaging in this practice and not just taking it whole hog. Oh, yeah, whatever he says, that's what I believe. Just actually letting it work on you and, and find questioning it, turning it over and over and over again, encountering it behind the monitor and, and in your day and with other people and in your relationships and and bumping into it and not understanding it and having to come back around again to it. That's really that's really how you develop this practice yourself is by constantly not understanding it and coming back to it and coming back to it again and it takes courage like john said to do that and, and i can hear that in everyone that's talking that does that so thank you all well said matt <laughs> when we're meditating earlier i, I always feel very fortunate when I meditate here. Um, but then listening to the crickets tonight, it's just, I mean, it's Frenchtown, you know, Frenchtown, New Jersey. But it's like the perfect place to practice a Dhamma, isn't it? it is. And you're all, you really, I, I and I, I know it sounds a little silly, but I feel, just like Matt just said, I feel so fortunate to be a part of your Sangha. Um, and, and to be a part of all of your courage and, and commitment to the Dhamma. And we, and we talk about it, I don't think any, does anybody, has anybody and everybody noticed there's no competition here, is there? Nobody's afraid of saying, I'm not quite there as like this other person is. And we're just practicing the Dhamma and we're being very gentle with ourselves and it's working. Does anybody have anything they'd like to ask or add? Yes. Great. Another reminder, listen to the hindrance. Yes. And Jen's class. Mm -hmm. That was a wonderful dovetail of important days. Yeah, and it feeds right into this. You know, so there's the last two classes that are posted, and I'll post tonight's class probably. Well, I usually get to it by tomorrow night before that email goes out. And October 20th to 22nd, come to our fall retreat here. On the four I'm foundations of mindfulness. Yeah. We break it down into six sessions, six different teachers. Matt teaching Qigong every morning. Uh, it really is a wonderful weekend. And as much as we can, even though we're not all living together like we did once a year at Juan, uh, it works pretty well. Mm -hmm. So it, everybody that has ever joined felt that it really deepened their practice. So please join us for that. We'll finish with Meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your in-breath and out-breath unite your mind and your body.
And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, describing the qualities of an awakened human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, and having completed the path, they do not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance before no peace. That's the end of tonight's class. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you all. Peace, everyone. Thank you. See you, Sadika. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.